You are listening to Cut to Kellogg, a podcast by and for media experts and enthusiasts on the biggest questions facing the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Kelsey O'Connor, and today we are talking streaming with Disney strategist and Kellogg alumna Mia He. Mia spends a lot of her day thinking about how to make Disney successful in the competitive landscape of streaming, and we have her team to thank for having a hand in a lot of the great content that we all enjoy from Disney. Let's cut to Kellogg and meet our guests for today. All right, here we go. So excited. Today, we are here with Mia He, who is a senior manager at Disney on the strategy and business operations team at Disney General Entertainment Content, which is the team that's responsible for creating content for brands like Hulu Originals, ABC Entertainment, ABC News, FX, Freeform, Disney branded channels, and National Geographic. She has also held roles at Warner Media, Pandora, and Caesars Entertainment. And she's also an alumna of the class of 2018 from Kellogg. So we're so excited to have you back in our ecosystem. And- and talking media and entertainment with us. Thanks for the intro, Kelsey. Really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to chat with you guys all things about entertainment. Yes. Could you give us just sort of a very high level, quick version of what exactly it is you do at Disney on the DGE team? Yeah, of course. So the DGE team, like you said, is the content team that creates all these content for our linear TV channels, as well as Hulu Originals. My team is called Strategy and Operations, and you can think of us as the business people that oversee all these brands, and we work on things you don't want to burden the creative teams, like you want them to do what they're good at, which is creating content, and we take care of the rest, like the corporate stuff, and then on the strategy side, it's more about how do we holistically think about what content we should be creating, like Hulu Originals, FX, those are all individual content teams and they create their own content. They don't really have visibility into what other teams are creating. So we kind of look at these more high-level holistic strategy problems and let the creative teams focus on, you know, creating the content that everyone loves. You must be in a very key position for understanding the streaming wars and all of the different platforms that seems like there's a new one every day and also one fewer every day. (laughs) So I imagine that you spend a lot of time thinking about the competitive landscape too. What are the biggest things that we should consider when we're thinking about all of these different platforms and what that looks like today? So I'm sure you guys have all seen Netflix's latest earning and the kind of fallout, not only for them, but also for the rest of the industry. If you're asking this question two years ago, it's all about stuff, right? Like how do you drive subscribers to your platform? And I think that was the standard for Netflix that Wall Street set, which became the standard for all the other streaming platforms that came after. But, you know, they spend a lot of money chasing these subs, regardless of cost. They spend a lot of money on a lot of different content. They have huge, massive deals with, you know, Shonda Rhimes, with Ryan Murphy, which I heard was like $300 million. They do it regardless of cost, just because they want to drive subscribers. I think now, because you're losing subscribers, it's kind of coming to a head as companies think about, or Wall Street think about like, okay, are these subscribers turning into profitability? Are they actually 
making money off of these subscribers and how can you be sustainable in the long term. So I think now companies are thinking about more of the bottom line instead of just subscribers. So it's how do you not only drive subscribers, but drive subscribers that are making you money. You still have to make really good content because at the end of the day, content is king. But it's about being more thoughtful about what content you create. It's thinking about what resonates with the audience, what keeps them there for a long time. For example, like a, a show like Game of Thrones, right? Like you can make that show. It's really expensive. It's driving subscribers, but those subscribers maybe only come in for Game of Thrones and then they unsubscribe and then they only come back the next season. Are those subscribers worth as much as a subscriber who's always there, watch all the other shows on, on HBO Max? What's the lifetime value of these different subscribers and who do you want to attract? Not saying you shouldn't make shows like Game of Thrones because that drives culture and that drives, you know, conversation and it defines your brand. But it's just thinking more about these trade-offs and how you can actually be smart about your content investment. Yeah, I imagine, especially with a company like Disney that has such a deep and also historical content library, is that seen as your key differentiator when you're thinking about the long-term versus short-term? Yeah, I think libraries are really important because people can come and watch a show, but it's what are they going to do after? You don't want these subscribers to churn out because if they're only here for the expensive shows, they are not worth it because you spend so much money to get these subscribers. That's why having a good library is so important of past shows. WarnerMedia has Friends, Hulu has Modern Family, they have all the broadcast shows. And these are shows that have a lot of seasons and those are the ones that people put on repeatedly and watch repeatedly. And those are really important to keep the subscribers. You know, it's the show they turn to every day and it's not like a Game of Thrones or Mandalorian where it's only a season per year or maybe two a year and you can't keep the subscribers who only come for those shows. Switching gears a little bit, thinking about Disney's key differentiators is this huge library of content. Feature Mm -hmm. films are also a core part of their business. How has streaming changed how Disney is thinking about feature film releases in the theater versus on Disney Plus or one of their other platforms? I think the streaming wars plus COVID caused a huge change in theatrical. I don't think streaming alone would have done it. I think they really needed this big disruptor, which was COVID to act as an excuse because there are just so many players in the theatrical supply chain that I don't think the industry was ready to disrupt it and put movies on streaming. I think as an industry, everyone is moving. I think Disney tried a bunch of different things. They're not as extreme as Warner Media, who put their entire slate on streaming, but Disney, I think they did different things. They still put some Marvel movies in theaters only. I think they put some Pixar movies to streaming, straight to streaming on Disney Plus. And then they also did Premiere Access or something where you need to have a Disney Plus account already, but then you pay $20 on top of that to watch a new movie. So I think Disney is a little bit more testing out what works best depending on the genre, 
of the movie and trying to see just the different reactions from consumers. And then I think now that the dust kind of settled on COVID and things are kind of returning to normal, what we're seeing is that now the theatrical window is really compressed. It used to be 90 days, which then it goes to PVOD, which is premium video on demand. It's when you go on Apple or you go on Amazon and you can rent it for $4.99 or buy it for $20.99. I think now instead of that, a lot of these big movies are going straight to streaming services in order to drive subscribers. So they are foregoing, you know, a chunk of that transactional video revenue in order to drive their streaming services. Is that a big change to the PL? Was PVOD a portion of yeah. the revenue that they were bringing in before? Yeah. It's basically the window after theatrical, and you're basically completely taking that out because before people really didn't have any other way to see these movies. There was no streaming. So if you didn't see in theaters, you have to do PVOD. Or you can buy, you know, DVD and Blu-rays, which is a window after that. And so how do you think about a show that might get released only on streaming versus a show that would go to linear? So shows need to be only on linear. And the pay structure is more on the back end. Production companies usually used to own the rights. And then they would give the rights to a network for the first run. But where the production company makes money is when they have a hit on their hands, which is really rare. Then you can make all the money on the back end through syndication, which is when you license it to a whole bunch of different TV networks. Now that's no longer the case because streaming services want to own the rights to these shows so they can always have them on their platform. So the pay structure is really different. Now companies tend to pay these production companies and talent upfront because there is no syndication money. So production companies and talent probably get more money upfront now, but they lose out on the upside. So I think on average, they may make more, right? Because it's so hard to have hit, but, you, but at least you make a decent amount upfront. But when you do have a hit on your hands, you lose out on all that back end. I think the Friends cast is still making like, $20 million a year or something through syndication, through licensing. So in today's day and age, if you have another friends, they wouldn't make all that money. So it's really, I don't know if we're set on what's the right way in the streaming world to pay talent. And I think it's still an evolving process, but that's kind of the change that has happened. Do you think that that changes or how do you think that that changes incentives for production companies and talent? That's a good question. I think for less well-known talent, that's actually a good thing because at least they can make a living wage, a decent amount of money. I think for some of the bigger names and talent, it's a little harder to accept just because they expect, you know, to get a lot more on the back end, but that's no longer the case. But I will say Netflix is kind of a pioneer in this because they had to deal with it first, but they started having massive deals with talent or creatives that, you know, they deem really important, like Ryan Murphy, who did Glee and American Horror Stories, or Shonda Rhimes, 
they had these hundreds of million dollar exclusive deals with them to make sure that they are creating content with them and they're trying to get them with this upfront money because they can't get that back-end syndication money. We actually talked about the Shonda Rhimes deal in our intro to strategy class and wondering if it was a winner's curse situation with that bidding war. Yeah. Given what's going on today, I don't think you'll see too many more of these deals. Like I said, companies are now being really more conscious about their cost. So I really doubt that these kind of deals will continue to happen. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about sports. Um, ESPN Mm -hmm. is owned by Disney. How does this factor into the overall competitive position? You know, sports are a huge part of linear. When we think about live streaming, I think that's pretty much owned by YouTube. And then there's up and comers like Fubo that have a lot of these sports elements too. Can you talk a little bit about ESPN and and how sports factor into Disney's bigger picture? So ESPN is like the biggest brand in sports. That's a really important brand for us. It gets a lot of money, both ad money and affiliate from cable companies. So ESPN is really important brand for us. Also, when we talk about creating a service that's sticky, people will stay. I think the future of streaming is about curating this package of streaming services that will keep people subscribing, right? For Disney, it's the Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN bundle. It's about having something for everyone in the family. And you will never think about unsubscribing because my husband needs ESPN to watch his sports. My kid needs Disney Plus and I need Hulu. So it's about creating that bundle that people want to keep. But media companies like Disney, like Fox, they're still making a lot of money on linear, on sports. So I think it will be quite a while until sports goes off streaming. I think you see that now more with the smaller leagues, but NFL, NBA, I think are still going to be on linear for a really long time just because we still make so much money from them. But I think there are new players in the market like Apple, Amazon, YouTube, you mentioned. I think they are realizing how much people care about sports. So they're really making a push. They're also trying to make their products stickier, but it's a different product, right? Amazon is trying to make sure you always subscribe to their prime membership apple wants to keep you in their ecosystem and these tech companies have so much cash so they can really bid on these sports rights allegedly i think apple is the front runner to get sunday ticket from direct tv i think starting this year amazon has exclusive rights to thursday night football so i think these tech companies are also starting to make a push for these sports rights putting them on streaming, that is driving up the cost for sports rights. I don't know where that's going to end. I think it's basically a bit more, right? And because of that reason, I actually worry less about companies like Fubo. They're really niche sports only VMEPD, which is the same as YouTube Live TV and Google Live TV. I think in the long term, it's really hard for them to get the major sports rights that they need in order to gain that scale. 
So they could borrow money in the short run to do it, but I don't think that's very sustainable. It's so competitive. All these major media companies are also out there bidding for all these sports rights. So even the used to be the cheap ones are now getting more expensive. So I just don't think Fubo will have the capital to sustain the long, healthy business. So in the long term, I wouldn't really worry about them. We've seen this trend with content in general towards specificity, these very specific stories, thinking of something like Drive to Survive, where it's very niche, but then becomes bigger. And it almost Mm -hmm. strikes me that some of these niche sports too, that ESPN is investing in now because there are a few very passionate fans and that energy can kind of grow and that will bring them to your platform. And so it's interesting that this trend towards specificity is creating these huge networks and communities within these platforms too. Yeah. I realize we're getting to the end of our time here, but what are we not thinking about that you think about every day? What haven't I asked about that is hugely important? Um, I think we talked about the thing that is on our mind the most about how we create content that resonates. It's less about a content itself. We think a lot about how content complement each other on the service. We think about the different subscribers that we have. If a certain title drove them to the platform, do we have enough content to complement or that would interest them to keep them on the content or on the platform. So it's just being really thoughtful about what kind of content we should create for different types of consumers and how do we do it in a very cost efficient way. So I think that is, especially with the Netflix earnings that have a huge impact on the industry is becoming more and more important that companies think about the bottom line instead of just driving pure subscribers. So does that mean if people come for Marvel, then you have a lot of content and sort of create this flywheel of fandom that keeps people in? That's sort of what's coming into my head when you say something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Marvel and Star Wars, if you think about those franchises, those cost a lot to make, right? So it's looking at the consumers who come in for these shows. Are they staying? Are they churning out once they're done watching the new season? And then how can we keep them? Or maybe there's a small cohort of people that just do that and that's okay. We still need to make these shows to keep the Disney Plus name to be associated with premium content, with Marvel, with Star Wars. They don't necessarily need to make money for us just as one show, but it's how can we make sure we have enough other stuff and have enough subscribers who are here to stay to make it sustainable? Yeah. And I, I think if you have a Marvel show, you can also supplement that with a film and a park experience and mm-hmm. merch and, you know, yes. the entire Disney um, yeah. ecosystem, if you will. Yeah. We yeah. were joking about the Apple ecosystem earlier. I think Disney yeah. has a, a similar concept yeah. going for it. And it also already owns these franchises, which is different from a Netflix. Yeah, I think Disney definitely has that flywheel going, which is to our benefit if we take really good advantage of it. And now there's a Star Wars ride at Disneyland and they're coming out with a Jungle Cruise 
movie, which is, you know, taken from the ride at Disneyland. So I think there are a lot of opportunities like that for Disney that the other media companies don't necessarily have. So if we can be thoughtful about creating content and driving that flywheel, hopefully we'll be, you know, one of the four company or main streaming services that will be there in the long term. You've all had a, a long history, so... Yes. I can imagine that people will will stick around. Well, thank you so much for all of that. I want to jump into our last section, which is our final cut questions, our rapid fire section about the things that you like. Sounds good. Cool. So first, what is your favorite piece of recent media that you would recommend? So I actually, this is not a new show, but I recently got into Manifest. I don't know if you guys know about it, but it's a broadcast show that used to be on NBC and then they had three seasons and then they canceled it and then they put it on Netflix and it was top show like immediately. So then they renewed for a fourth season and I just got into it and it's like so addicting. My husband and I finished all three seasons in a month. So now we're waiting for the final season to come out on Netflix. And there's some other shows we've been watching. It's like Recrashed, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. The Dropout, which is on Hulu, and The Kardashians on Hulu, which I watch by myself. Love them or hate them, but Kris Jenner works hard. I think I just saw a bunch of memes of Kendall Jenner trying to cut a cucumber, which really went viral. Yeah, that was iconic. (laughs) What is a TV show or a movie that you always rewatch? For me, that'd be Friends and Schitt's Creek. Oh my gosh, Schitt's Creek is my favorite. It was always Friends until like Schitt's Creek came out. I'm with you on that one. What celebrity has been on your mind lately and why? Can I do two? I'll do two. One is more wholesome. He's a celebrity chef. It's Jose Andres. He has a lot of, you know, fancy restaurants, but he also has this nonprofit called World Central Kitchen, where they basically go to like any area that has been through a disaster or war, and they feed the people there for free. Literally, the war in Ukraine broke out, and the next day, he's there. So I just have a lot of admiration for his organization and him himself. And then the second person is Rihanna. I was just telling my husband the other day, I think she just gave birth. So congratulations to her and her husband. But she has really revolutionized pregnancy fashion. So I really appreciate her for that. What type of media could you live without? I would have to say games. I don't play games at all. So the Switch was all the rage for a long time. And I asked my husband to buy me one. And then I almost never play on it. I just have it. Well, you've made it through. Thank you so much on Final Cut. Is there any social media or anything else that you'd like to plug where our listeners can find you? If there's not, that's okay. No, no social media. But if you want to know more about my experience, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much, Mia. It was so great having you on today and we're excited to have you on the show and back plugged in with Media Entertainment Club at Kellogg. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, give us a follow on Spotify and be sure to check out our blog, Lights, Camera, Kellogg. You can follow us on Instagram at Kellogg Media Entertainment. Cut to Kellogg is a production of the Media and Entertainment Club at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. It is produced by Ray Hung, Lindsay Kalbaugh, and Kelsey O'Connor. Our theme song is written and performed by Ryan Blackwell. 
Tune in next time to hear more insights on the media and entertainment industry.